You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another riveting edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. Broadcasting live from me and Meg's living room and Beautiful Portland, Oregon, and oh man, this weather, let me tell you. Um, we are lucky, always, lucky, lucky yeah. to get this sunshine, aren't we? It's about time. We only waited seven months. Um, <laughs> in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth, anything that can be done to curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable, and that's what we set out to do every week here at Felony Inc. Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Eugene Brown from the Big Chair Chess Club.org. Big Chair Chess Club aims to teach the unteachable, reach the unreachable, and help others discover the power that comes from always thinking before they move. I can't agree more with that statement. Um, Eugene, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. So, uh, Eugene, I mean, we have so much to talk about in so little time. Um, Typically, how we start the show off is we kind of go into a little bit about your uh, childhood, your upbringing, and what got you to the position that you're at today. Uh, Would you care to elaborate on that? Well, you know, I came up uh, as as a real troubled kid. You know, I was challenged at an early age. Uh, you know, one of the things I came from a neighborhood that was really classified, it would be classified as third world. You know, you had people that were, uh, had to use outhouses for, for the laboratory. Uh, some people didn't have running water. You know, some people had to drink water from wells. And, you know, so uh, we was, I came from a moderate family, father and mother working in the government. And we, we stayed in that, you know, we stayed uh, living in an area uh, similar to that for years until my parents hit up. Back then, they called it the number. And when, and my father hit a street number, and we moved to a, a, a somewhat middle-class neighborhood. But, you know, as fate would have it, we, you know, we, we moved, but we brought ourselves with us. You know, we brought the same behavior, morals, and, you know, our values. Nothing changed. So, you know, I was, you know, I was making pretty good grades and and school but there was always comments where they had my parents had to come up and see about me you know it was a trouble here and and those type of that behavior problem led me you know uh long before you know uh, i started getting arrested you know uh i was having i was i was i was having problems years before the handcuffs so it was just inevitable with uh you know a lot of uh People that, you know, that uh, my representatives at an early age were, most of them were, you know, in, in the life, uh, hustlers, gamblers, you know, prostitutes. Most of those people in our community that the community had left, they were the ones that, you know, kind of, uh, I got an idealistic concept about how I wanted to live at an early age. And it just led to a, a lot of incarcerations and a lot of, you know, uh, of negative thinking, uh, 
and until I was able to, you know, really unravel, you know, uh, why was I, you know, living at that that state, you know. So. Hey, Eugene. So you're in North Carolina now. Did you grow up in North Carolina? No, I grew up in Washington D.C. Washington D.C. is my home. All right. Yeah, Washington D.C. is my is, is my home, and and one thing uh, living in Washington D.C. Uh, you know, uh, even even though I'm uh, at my age, and and I've seen you know a lot of uh, the Jim Crow, a lot of uh, you know right after uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, one of the things that that I really admire our teachers for back then is you know we we learned a lot of African American history. At, at our schools back then, so just navigating our my way through through society, uh, I never really suffered a lot of those pings of you know, especially in Washington D.C. Washington D.C. was you know even back in slavery, it was one of and as a southern state, it was one of the most relaxed southern slave states out of them all because they didn't have to you know do the field work and a lot of them worked. Uh, close to you know uh, to the government uh, people and people that were in, in positions and you know uh, they were able to bring a, a lot of the information that that they heard around them you know uh, I would say that we got kind of got it firsthand right so Washington D.C. has always been a progressive town for for. Uh, African-American, as well as the nation's capital. It's not just the nation's capital, it's the world's capital. Interesting. That's it. That's that's an interesting perspective. I'm curious, um, before I ask you, I mean, you know, you're talking about Jim Crow. Are you familiar with the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's work about oh, yeah. prison? Mm-hmm. Very, mm-hmm. very inspirational. I love, love that work. Um, it really puts things into perspective uh, about what's happening in our justice system versus just putting the, you know, punishing the bad people and not the good people. It's a whole different enlightening perspective. I'd recommend that book to absolutely anyone listening. Um, Will you tell us a little bit, go back just a little bit. I'm very excited to get to your transformation, but curious if you want to elaborate just a little bit on what kind of prison time you did and where you were and how that experience was for you. What time, how old you were when you started getting uh, locked up and, you know, when was your last, when was your last time you walked out the door? And, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to encapsulate a lot of that and to the terminology that I've been able to construe it into today. Uh, and just like I just stated, the, my incarcerated, my incarceration started way back with those behavior problems, you know, so I, I, I dated back to, to, to that. And and as far as you know, uh, I, I went through the juvenile system. Uh, then I graduated. Then I graduated, and then I graduated. And most of the, <laughs> it's funny that you know everything that I was doing, even when the kids in the neighborhood I, I was having problems with, and they would come to my mother and they would tell her, and and I would always give her an excuse why it wasn't me, and then. The teachers would always have comments, and I would always have an excuse why it wasn't me. And then, 
the police start, you know, coming to the house and I would always have excuses. And and then years later, the FBI started coming to the house. And, and so my mother finally said, she said, look, she said, I'm going to tell you something. She said, all these, all these years and all these people, you know, she said, it's funny. They're all saying the same thing, but you always saying it's never you. You know, and that's how <laughs> that's how I was always using excuses. But you know, I started to 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 uh, crime, and, and I said to a lot of people from the glorification, really, of a lot of prison stories that we heard in the inner city. You know, you got guys that's coming home from prison. You know, and and you know, uh, you know, I, I was almost. Uh, adopted into the prison system as an occupational hazard. So going to prison was almost, hey, this is this is part of the game, you know. Uh, almost so, a badge of honor in some circles. It, it, you it, did it, your it, time. It means that you're trustworthy. <clears throat> I mean, it's absolutely. And there's people on the other side of of of, of the tracks that that they're hearing different stories from people coming home from college, their fraternities, and, and you know, hey, they can't wait to, to you know, to select what colleges they're going to go to, opposed to, you know, you hearing stories of, you know, I did time in Leavenworth, I did time here, I did time, you know, and, and so those type of stories were, were stories that were, it's not so much of, uh, even the drugs was on the scene, but one of the greatest drugs was a social narcotic that was injected into, you know, into me at an early age. So it took a long time to detox from, from that social injustice, from the social narcotics that, that I, that I lived under, you know. And that's an amazing and important point. I mean, there's so much of a narrative on that other side of the track that, you know, it's something you do that's bad or wrong that ends you in prison or addiction or mental illness or whatever it is. And of course, all of those things play some part. But what you're talking about, that that social acceptance, that way that you become part of a community and part of a lineage by doing time, that badge of honor, that kind of, <clears throat> you know, I've got what it takes. I can handle that, that kind of toughness and identity that comes with being part of a community is such mm-hmm. an incredibly powerful factor for people and such an intense thing to overcome. That seems to me that that piece can even be more of a challenge to overcome than the drug addiction, you know, or so I'm curious what that took for you to transform in that way, because there's almost a rejection of everything you've ever known and people that you truly love in order to have that transformation. Will you talk more to that? Well, you know, uh, early on, I started, I started uh, hearing about uh, rehabilitation and so this was uh, come do it to, you know, re, you know, redefining who you were. You, you know, I was given rehabilitation programs and rehabilitation programs, and and so finally, uh, I was I was I was in Trenton State Prison, and they had a forum there, and they had some guys, some they had some people that came in from Princeton. And uh, these guys, you know, most of these guys were from Newark, 
you know, uh, they were from New York. Uh, uh, Trenton State Prison, you, you know, is just like just across the line from New York. So a lot of New Yorkers, you know, ended up in Trenton. But one of the things that I heard and I never forgot it, uh, and they were talking about rehabilitation to some students, sociologists, uh, majors from, from Princeton. And they, they they asked about rehabilitation. How did you, really, what do you think about rehabilitation? The guy said, you know, you speak about rehabilitation. What about habilitation? I was never habilitated. So how, how a rehabilitation program, they miss me. So that brings me up to to today of of a lot of people that fall into the criminal justice system and they get a rehabilitation program and and it it always strikes me because the re is just a prefix to habilitation. So to redo anything, it had to, it had to be done in the first place. And a lot of people that we see now that's in and out of the Department of Correction has never been habilitated. So, so that's, that's, that has, that has been uh, the foremost focus of me reorienting my life to restructure, you know, the, the, the habilitating process. So I, I can go back then to say that I did come from a two-parent family. I was given, I was habilitated. We used to eat as a family, travel as a, do things as a family. I had those experiences. So it wasn't that difficult to me because everything that they was trying to explain to me back then actually came to fruition years later. So, you know, just fast forward and, you know, a lot of prison time and going in and out of, you know, uh, Department of Correction. And finally, I was in Trenton State Prison. And one of the, you know, uh, this is how, I, you know, chess has always been, you know, every time I used to go, you know, really get locked up. Being an introvert, I would always gravitate towards the chessboard. Uh, chess was introduced into uh, 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 our community, my community, uh, during the summer at an Afrocentric program. And, you know, they was, you know, edifying how the king and the queen and, you know, who we were. And it was using a lot of different. So I took, you know, I, I learned, we learned the game, but it didn't have any significance. But as I went in and out of the Department of Correction, chess had always been, you know, my tabletop game because I didn't like, you know, sitting playing cards. And then the type of life that I was living, I thought it was, you know, most guys that are always cunning baffling and you know that use their mind always you know the guys that i looked up the guys that i my representative they were chess players and so you know it it just uh it just fascinated me to outthink someone so chess came very very fundamental to me as i did my time you know i used to read a lot but, you know, I just became just a positive of reading. I had no real way of uh, really expressing myself. So I'm in Trenton State Prison. I'm a bomb. You know, I, as I went to school, my high school trade was a barber. I, I became a barber uh, from my high school trade, you know, uh, just living a constructive life. And I was working in a barbershop for years. So my barber's license ended up being my escort when I was in, in Trenton State Prison because I became the the a barber where all of anybody that came into prisons back then had to get all the facial hair cut off and a bald head. 
So I was cutting uh, uh, mayor. I never forget mayor Adonisio from Newark. Uh, I mean, so really, really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, so some mafioso figures, names that I won't even call. Uh, I, had, I had to cut their hair. I mean, as everyone walked in and they would get a fish suit, a white suit. And back then, Trenton State Prison was, I mean, it was just like a a dungeon. You know, I mean, nothing had been really, really done to it since the 1800s. And so it was just when you came in, you got a bucket, a cup and a spoon and and you you showered every other day. You know, in the days that you didn't shower, the man came by, the guy, the tearsman came by with a, you know, like a pot that they water flowers with. They had, that's where the hot water was. They poured it in your bucket. And these were three essentials that you kept the whole time you were there. So just to make a long story short, I'm playing chess, I'm playing chess. And I'm trading books one day up on, I don't know if you remember Hurricane Reuben Carter? Uh Uh-uh, what's that? (laughs) Hurricane Reuben Carter, you don't remember the prize fighter named Hurricane that did 20 some years and knew they had a movie for about him. Uh, Good grief, what's the movie? Gotta watch. Uh, uh, the Hurricane. The Hurricane. Mm-hmm. Hurricane Carter, writing it down. Yeah. And uh, Denzel Washington played him. He was a prize fighter that, that, <laughs> that fought for the championship in Philadelphia, and he beat this guy clearly. And it and the and the referee and the and the and the uh, they they took a, a half an hour to come back with a decision, <laughs> and and he lost the fight. But uh, anyway, after he was exonerated years later, they gave him the belt for that fight. They know they had taken it away from him. But anyway. So I'm in Trenton State Prison. Uh, I'm playing chess out on, you know, by being a barber. I got, you know, I can get around to jail. Not only am I uh, a barber, I got a position because I'm not wearing prison clothes. I'm wearing a white jacket. And I get, I, I got to know a lot of people. And some of the people that, that really took me for, I think, more than what, what I, I really represented was the fact that I had a, some guys that that used to go to New York to get their drugs or whatever, they got arrested and they ended up doing time in Trenton. So when they came in, I knew them, but they knew some of the head figures and and you know, like the the high echelon of, you know, you know, uh of I guess criminal hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. I would just say <laughs> the mob, I don't know if they mafia, but they knew these guys. So by them knowing those guys, and I knew them, and 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 they seen me walking with these guys, so that that sheds some light on my credibility. But I was trading books up on Seven Up. Seven Up is is a block where most of the guys up there they they would call encourageable guys that have life sentences. And back then, and I was I, I went to prison in New Jersey. I was 23, 24 years, 23. In 1969, a young man from Washington, D.C., on my way to New York, uh, we held up a store, got caught. I ended up going to Trenton State Prison, a prison where I didn't know anyone. And that's where my whole life changed. 
it changed to the point of 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 you know of I accepted death. I, I I never thought I was gonna really make it out of there. You know, I thought I, I had really uh agreed with this is where it might all end, you know, if I'm if I'm violated, you know, and that was one of my biggest fears, you know, to be in prison. And and I had seen, you know, uh, you know, I, I know what goes on in prison. And I had to just I made an oath to myself that, you know, I that I would probably just I just die first, you know. So anyway, nothing like that ever happened, but it was it was a state of mind that I was in, and that's how thick the atmosphere was. That you could only get you only get seven years back then for killing another inmate. So uh, life at that time wasn't that valuable. So by you know by me being able, I could go out on the yard every day, twice a day, because you only had two yards: one in the day, one one in the evening, one in the, one in the morning, one in the evening, and I could shower every day. So I, I kind of had my way around the prison. I wasn't a big shot. I know me, but I knew, you know, I had a lot of jail experience. Uh, matter of fact, I had a, I was I had a fugitive warrant after I finished that sentence for bank robbery. I had robbed a bank in D.C. So I'm out on the yard. I'm playing chess. So one day I was trading books up on Seven Up, and I come uh, down the tier, and on my way back, I happened to look in this guy's cell, and he had three chess boards set up. And his back was turned to me. And each chessboard was like elevated on like the shelves, but you could see it was three chess. So I'm looking. The guy turned around. He said, Brother, you have a problem looking at my cell. I said, Brother, excuse me, you know, looking at someone's cell is like home invasion. So I said, No. I said, No, brother. I said, Forgive me. I said, But I'm just wondering why you need three boards set up. This was the first time I ever seen this. So he said, do you play? So I said, yeah, yes, I play. He said, what openings do you use? I said, openings, man, I just play. He said, <laughs> so he kind of <laughs> laughed. He said, he said, no, brother. He said, let me explain something to you. He said, you know, what I'm doing now, I'm going through my opening repertoire. He said, sometimes, you know, you got to understand your opening and he said, you know, there's three parts to a chess game. There's an opening, there's a middle, there's an end. You know, just like there's four elements. There's time, space, force, and material. You know, he just went on, man. He went on in, in that cell at that time. After he finished explaining to me, it turned out to be a classroom. I stood there fascinated by him explaining, you know, the nuances and everything that's really the parallels of life and chess. And he told me, he said, you know, you know, you can actually tell how a person lives if you if he plays chess, you know, you can tell if he he's a cheap guy, if he's petty, how how big a lot of lot of you know ways that you can tell, you know, how people think. And you know, chess can be a pattern to a person's life. And uh he said, uh, what you know what piece do what, what if you was on the board, what piece would you see yourself as? So I said, man, I don't know any piece I can use. He said, no, brother. He said, let me explain one thing to you. He said, don't you ever forget that. He said, you are the king. And once you understand your kingship, your whole life will change. And I, I asked him to, to, to clarify that. And he went into the details. And that was a life-changing experience to me. And, it, and when I left there, it let me know that 
I was I all of those years and all those things. Everybody I ever pointed my finger to that was the cause of my demise. I found out that it was me, and I and and I had and that was the last thing he saw me. And he said, "Until you accept your kingship, you're gonna keep coming back and forth to prison. You're responsible for every move that you make on your side of the board." You can't blame nobody for any position that you find yourself in. Any position that you find you, yourself in, your thinking got you there. Any way you find you're behind, your mind got you there. And so, oh, Eugene, was, I got literal chills. Um, I'm going to pause you just there for just a sec so we can get this ad out of the way. But please do not forget what you were talking about because I want this story to keep going. Okay. CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. All right, and we're back. And if you're just joining us again, our guest is Eugene Brown, uh, founder of the Big Chair Chess Club.org. Uh, Eugene, uh, we're talking about a lot of really inspirational stuff here. I mean, your story is obviously incredibly inspirational and, and unbelievable, honestly, just Brilliant. knowing how it ends. <laughs> yeah. Um, essentially, you got. On your bio, it says you got 18 years for bank robbery, and um, is that correct? Yeah, uh, with with uh, it was combined sentence because I, I was doing time in in uh, New Jersey and state, and 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 after I finished that, they swooped me back, uh, and I ended up finishing my sentence at, at Lewisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. So when that was going on, I mean, they tell you you got to do all these years on top of what you've already done. It'd be really easy for most people just kind of get used to it and give up. You know, I feel like, I mean, obviously you persevered tremendously, but uh, could you have ever imagined the chess would have been your saving grace in this whole thing? No, no. I, you know, and I, and I look back now and, and what, what we, what, what I look back as as a cornerstone, you know, I look back at some of the things that we think that's insignificant, just like, uh, just like people that fry chicken, you know. I, I know I know a lot of ladies can out fry Colonel, uh, Colonel Sanders, you know. But you know, I mean, those and they they take it as being insignificant. So and that's how I took chess, you know. I mean, I I never really thought that, you know, other than the fact that it was it was a good game to consume a lot of time, you know. It it was nothing that I thought I would ever bring to the street and be able to use as something that would, would supplement or, or actually change my life or, you know, or and give me employment, 
even now, you know, I'm a, I'm a chess instructor and, and that's how I make a living other than, you know, motivational speaking. But no, I never thought it would be, it, it would be the, 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 what I, what I would really need to make the transformation or that I would think that what I would hear that would, that would be what would cha- transform my life into giving me the chessboard gave me a worldview. Uh, because chess is an international game. And, and I'm actually quoting a lot of the things that was told to me by, and, and I, we ended up calling him, and he was the guy that was in prison that everybody in the prison called him the chess man. And this was his philosophy that I've been able to take, you know. This is the like, man you were just talking about, right? With the yeah, three yes. chess boards? Mm-hmm. So this was this philosophy. the time frame? So between uh, that, that moment where he, t- he started talking to you about that kingship, uh, and before, you had that epiphany to, you know, being able to get out of prison and take on chess as a well, as a career. Well, this this I I, I say uh, I say I would I would end it up uh, at least doing five more years under under uh, under his tutorage under his mentorship, uh, and he had befriended me. You know, back then there was a lot of. Uh, nationalism there was just a lot of movements going on you know in 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 our society you know especially in prison you had angela davis you had the panthers you know you had just was a lot and i was at that time i was very uh uh well read i was i was well read and you know about the whole movement and what was going on and him and i were able to share a lot of that information we traded a lot of books and he was the one that had you know just kind of guided me to uh you know some of the great uh african americans that were in history some of the books that i needed to read and he he was just a really fundamental guy as to uh you know when i look back at at people that were impactful in my life he he was one of them and you know a lot of the information he said man you know chess is an international game you know, uh, what's the difference between a national game and an international game? You know, I mean, he would just, as we talk, he said, you know, you know, you can play people that you don't even, may not even know, know the language, you know, you may not represent the same color, you may not have anything in common, but, you know, when you get into this 64 square jungle, you know, it all started making sense. So these are the type of things that he used to tell me, but I'll never forget one day, I always had an excuse about you know, and, and the whole time I was in Trenton State Prison, I never beat him. I would play, I would play. Every time I would lose, I would have an excuse. And and he would just shake his head. And one day he told me, he said, you know, you I'm reminded of a story that I heard a while back. And you remind me of him. He said, you always got an excuse. And one day I'd almost beat him. And it was a crowd around us. And it was watching the game as we played. And... I was getting ready to make a move and somebody somewhere said, that's a bad move. And I and, and before I put my hand on the piece, I brought it back and made another move and I ended up losing, which which I had the right move, but I listened to them and after the crowd left, I told the chess man, I said, you know, I had you. I said, I listened to them guy. He said, you know, I'm reminded of the story that I heard recently. He said, and you remind me of, he said, these guys was uh, have been working together for years. And like Joe, he came in late one day and he'd never been that late. It was two hours late. And as the guys 
know, was wondering where his fellow worker was. He said, maybe two and a half hours later, he came stumbling in and he looked up at him. He said, man, I never seen you this late. He said, what happened? He said, man, it's a long story. He said, you know, on my way to work, I had the ironing board set up and I had the iron on the ironing board and I had the telephone on the ironing board. And being in a, such a hurry, you know, I came in last night. I was drinking, man. I woke up. He said, I was in a rush. He said, and I was ironing and the phone rang. Instead of me picking up the the phone, I pick up the iron and bury my daggone face. <laughs> so he said, oh, man. I said, yeah. So we laughed. He said, yeah. He said, then he looked at He said, then he looked around at him on the other side. He said, well, what happened to the other side of your face? He said, man, you know that darn fool called me right back. He said, <laughs> so he said, that's who you remind me of. He said, you always got an excuse. He said, you know, you haven't accepted your kingship yet, you know. So these were some of the stories that kind of kind of beat my character, beat, you know, these these stories kind of beat my character because I couldn't leave them. I, I couldn't violate some of the basic principles of the chessboard. And the think before you move, that's that's my that's my motto. That's what I that's what I you can go to Wikipedia and and go and put think before you move. My name will come up. And one of the things he told me is, you know, you you have to visualize a, a checkmate. You have to visualize a checkmate. Uh, and you have to see further than your eyes can look. And that was a fascinating, you know, seeing further than your eyes can look. That's your vision. And... That's where to think before you move. Always think before you move is being able to see further than your eyes can look. And that's that and ignited my imagination to 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 understanding what a world worldview looks like. So these are some of the things that I was able to leave Krillin with as far as not even knowing that I'm gonna, you know, do this this um this this whole thing and 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 chess, you know, or even get involved in the chess community. But these were the things that kind of guided me from recidivism. Uh, it guided me from, you know, it didn't catch on right away because I had a few few other falls, you know, right after that because of, uh, you know, uh, you know, some addiction that I had to overcome. But these were some of the same principles that guided me, you know, o- over over, you know overcoming a lot of challenges so what was that path like for you when you so when you finally you know you stopped doing time you stepped away and got into doing chess professionally tell us a little bit about how that came about how you entered the the world of professional career chess and started your your organization well uh it it came haphazardly i was working in a school system and uh, I had a friend, uh, he got me involved in, in uh, uh, helping them in a school. We ended up winning five-year city champions in the District of Columbia. Most of these kids were from public housing. They were from, uh, you know, low income. But uh, Were you we teaching were at, chess in that yeah, school? Yeah, I was teaching okay. chess in public school. And, and uh, we ended up winning five-year city champions. So to the school system wanted to pay me. I was doing it as a volunteer. Actually, I was selling real estate. That's why I had the time because every day, every every 
they had lunchtime, I would go over. And uh, so these kids had gotten good. We ended up going to the national tournaments five uh, over wow. over over five times. You know, went to national tournament. So the school system. Uh, the city gave us awards. I was recognized, you know, uh, everywhere in, in, you know, through, through the city council as far as, you know, what, what we had did to the school way. Actually, they were a subpar school as far as their, their educational level, their reading scores and their math, everything below, but, but their chess game, you know. So they ended up, uh, uh, you know, wanting to pay me, and they were going to pay me well. So when they took, when they went downtown and took my fingerprints, I had said, no, I had never been arrested. And after that report came back, they ushered me out of the school system, you know, bank robbery, calling it, this, that. But uh, I was selling real estate, and I had a house that I was going to flip, and I had parents that was, you know, because the, I, I, I took some kids, and I looked back, I had a 70, I think a 74 Lincoln, Continental uh, limousine, <laughs> and that was our chess mobile. If you go on Big Chat Chess Club Facebook website, you'll see the picture of it. And the parents, I had five kids. The parents let me take these kids to Nashville, Tennessee, in this limousine from Washington D.C. <laughs> amazing. And, and 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 I didn't realize. The, the gravity of this trip until, you know, you're going, to, you're going around these mountains, you know, because you go to Nashville, Tennessee, you got to go around some mountains. And I'm going around these mountains with this in this big limousine. And I, I start having a second thought. I said, these parents must really trust me, you know. But that that was that was the trust. So they wanted to know, say, well, you know, since you're out of school, what, what are the kids going to do, you know? So I was trying to get a club. I was trying to start something at the library and this and that. And then I had a house that I was going to flip. And a guy had told me before there had been a chess house in uh, northwest D.C. We was in northeast. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this out of the chess house. So that's how the, that's how the chess house got started, you know, taking that house. And and just like if you've seen the movie, Cooper Good Jr., after he... He read the script. He actually was supposed to give it to a, this was the lowest budget movie that he's ever done. He was actually supposed to give it to a spine actor that he thought would be able to handle the part. But he didn't go out that night and he read it. He read the script. He said, I'll do this myself. And after he found out a little bit about me and, and, and one of the interviews that we had just similar to now, I told in the interview, they said, well, how did you get to the chess house? I said, well, we were losing too many kids to the street. They needed a place to go. So people could read that, remember that part. He said, anytime a guy that comes out of prison and say, we're losing too many kids to the street and open up a chess house, he said, this man should be known. So like I said, I didn't never know. I never knew the direction this whole thing was going into. But I know that, you know, outside of selling real estate, that was my passion. And so Eugene, I, back up just a little bit. Just throwing Cuba Gooding Jr. out into the into the ether. There, we got to back up and talk a little bit about that. Eugene was the subject of a movie called Life of a King, starring Cuba Gooding Jr. Will you tell us? Just will give us a little container and context for our listeners about how that film process came about and and that all that project ended up happening. And then, what was the time frame after finding that chess house? When did this film come about? 
Well, you're talking, we started the chess house in, in uh, uh, 2000. Okay, because I've known the census gave us, you know, I had I had like a little incentive money for the census. They gave us T-shirts just to advertise a lot of the census. I have T-shirts now with census on the back. So it started back back around then when we when when the chess house first started in uh, 1999. I actually started teaching chess in Washington D.C. in 1991, and so we we ended up in a chess house and and and. You know, outside of some of the churches that we were in, some of the outside places that we had established, I had one set up underneath of an arcway of a of a professional building. You know, they had like an arcway where you can walk, and it's like an indoor shelter, but you can kind of see out of the arc windows. You know, and on the weekends, uh, we would just set up over there. And I had a phone back then. You could get incoming phone calls. And I used to put that down on the flyer as my office. So right outside of that arcway was a big chair. If you look up big chair in Washington, D.C., you see this big giant, probably the biggest chair in the United States. Everybody in Washington, D.C. knows about the big chair. So they would ask, say, where are you all at? Say we had the big chair, so that's how we got the name, the Big Chair Chess Club, because we were set up right up underneath there. And so, what happened back when, when, when one summer, a girl from Georgetown University, she came out of a journalist class where they had a class where about twelve or fifteen of them had a summer job where everybody would go out and find a newsworthy story. Whoever's story was accepted, they would air it on ABC Up Close. Did you ever see the ABC Up Close that they did about about me? No, okay, have not well, watched okay, it, yet, but that, I'm writing that, it down. Okay, well that's where it all started from. So after the summer was over, everybody turned in their stories. Some people went to the White House. Some people went to the Agriculture Department. Some people went to different organizations. Because there's a lot of things going on in D.C. where people can get a story. So she saw, uh, they had a free paper, and she saw where they had done an article about me in the paper. And and so she asked, could you follow me? Make a long story short, after someone's over, my story was accepted. That's how I got on ABC Up Close. From ABC Up Close, the people in Hollywood saw it because it's a national, it was broadcast national. They came out. And that's when they saw, you know, what I was doing, and and you know, uh, and you know, uh, they were able to follow me around, and to get some of the, you know, the, the the stories how how you know the club was just more than a club. We had celebrated kids' birthday, they had kids that had never had a birthday party, you know, uh, guys that were uh, that were in trouble, that were always, you know, having problems, that just you know, turn out to be chess enthusiasts, you know, and now I got four or five kids from those, from those early classes, they're college graduates, some of them working on their master's degree, and to see that turn around, so, and it all came from Susan Hoffman following me around that summer, ABC up close, people in Hollywood seeing it, and they started contracting me back in 2002, and the movie never, every time they would try to, the producer would try to, you know, peddle it off, you know, to someone to buy it. They, you know, it was always another movie. It was always, so it ended up being a low budget movie. 
and asked me what I work with. I saw, yeah, man, you get me on the screen. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. So that's how the movie came about. And Cuba Gooden was, you know, and one of the things that really, that fright kind of frightened me because I, I made a snap decision is when they asked me, you know, would I sign this and I sign that? Because, you know, they had been paying me every, from 2002 to 2014 every time they would get an extension on the contract. So I said, yeah, I signed it. But after I found out Cooper Gooden Jr. was playing, you know, was portraying me, I said, oh, man, maybe I signed this thing too fast. It got me. <laughs> but but what happened was, after I, after I realized it, because it, the movie only aired in 16 theaters one day when it came out, and they never even showed it in Washington, D.C. in a major theater. And that's when I realized it was a low-budget movie. But one of the things that fascinated me, one of the, the, uh, the young ladies that played in the movie when I was in L.A., and and they were, because it was shot in L.A., they actually found a house that was similar to the house that I had in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> and everything was a win situation for everybody because the house that they went to this guy was in dare straits. He needed some help. And they asked him, could they use this house for, for these number of days and this and that? Oh, man, he was elated, you know. And and so he was on a winning situation. So after I met the whole cast and I met Cooper Gooden Jr., we sat and chatted for a while. And, you know, everybody gave me condolence accolades about, you know, my story. And so the last girl, you know, one of the, one of the last people that I met on the way out, you know, she would say, oh, Mr. Brown, I, I really appreciate you, you know, and and the, it, it got low budget because most of the people that played in it, the, the, they were from alternative schools. And that was the first time, you know, like modeling, tailoring, computer acting. So that's where they went and got these kids from. So Cuban Gooden, the movie was shot in 15 days. So the girl was saying, oh, you can't imagine the exposure that they gave me. I'm getting another contract to do this and that. She said, but I really appreciate, you know, Mr. Brown, I appreciate your story. And we was walking out of the house and she turned around and she said, come here for a minute. And we were outside and she said, look up, look up, look, look up here. And, look there. and she said, all these people, you put all these people to work because of your story. And you know how when they do a shoot, you can imagine all the all the cables and the and the trailers and everything that's out front, you know, up and down the street. And she said, Look, look at all of these people you put to work because of your story. And that's when the monetary part of everything kind of fell away. So so that's that got me over the hump of me me being taken advantage of. And after I really realized that it it was a low budget movie. Yeah, but, you know, Eugene, you were looking at the big picture. And I think uh, if you were to ask anyone deep down inside, I think every one of us secretly would like to have a movie made about our lives, you know. So I think that's an, obviously an insurmountable, incredible achievement. But just real quick, because we're running short on time, you also have recently developed a play called From Ponds to Kings, uh, which is going to debut in June. Uh, hopefully, if we can get this whole coronavirus situation under control uh can you elaborate on that a little bit uh explain what that is about yeah yeah this is this is this this play is it's in a day room so this day room you know most of the things that are most of the, most of a lot of events that go on in, in prison day room are 
is a panoramic view of of a community. And so the the play is Paul the King, and as as and that's the name of the book that I read written. Uh, anyone want a copy of the book? Uh, they can just email me at chessmaneugenebrown at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, for $10, I'll send them an autographed copy of my book. This is this is this book is almost similar to some of the things we already discussed about intergenerational incarceration and how it often occurs in the urban hood subculture. You know, I've seen grandmothers, mothers, and sons and grandsons all locked up at one time, you know. So, you know, we, I, I saw this thread and I'm able to, you know, do a sociological, you know, analytical inspection as to, like I said, a lot of it started back from, you know, uh, low income, uh, fascinating jail story. But the play is an amazing story of a wrongfully convicted inmate that never gave up hope. After serving over three decades in prison, he was finally exonerated. But so what happened was the fact that the chess man never lost a game in 30 years. And they found a young guy that was a chess master that was that was locked up in another part of the in the system. And they ended up merging these two together because they wanted to see this big playoff. So this is what the story actually you know, uh, actually, that's the major dramatic climax of the story of them meeting and playing uh, for like the jail. The chess man is known as the grand chess, the prison grandmaster. And this young guy comes in the challenge and he has quite a chess reputation. And uh, so the hype of it is that chess man years ago, he turned out to be a chess hustler. Because of uh, he wasn't really, you know, really making money in tournaments. So he ended up, you know, being a, a park player and ended up going across country. And one of his biggest feats was when he, he ended up beating Bobby Fisher in New York. But this is all in oh, the storyline. Yeah, this is all in the storyline. This is his back story. So, you know, after after so pawns the kings, this is what the play is all about. So there's a lot of other things going on in the day room. One of the things going on in the day room is uh, one of the guys he has a telephone and he gets it from the guard and he calls home and he's on the speaker and he's really bragging about how he got it going on with one of the guards and they and he calls home to him and his daughter answers his phone and he says, Hey babe, how you doing? How's everything? And and she they talking for a while. He said, Oh yeah, how you doing at school? And she said, Oh, we're doing well. We're getting ready to go on a trip. He said, Oh, well, I'm just so proud. Said, I don't have much time to talk. She says, Mommy there? He said, No, mommy's not here, but daddy here. You want to talk to him? And, and that was his daughter, you know. So, you know, when when and and I saw this actually happen where you know, a guy called home and speak to his daughter. And back then, you know, when you're in the council's office, you couldn't speak. And 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 the kid actually said that on the phone. He went the, the inmate, I mean, they had to lock him down. It was it was traumatic. So it's just a lot of these stories like these that that's encapsulate the major dramatic climax of the chess man. And I'm not gonna I'm so, not gonna give you that part until you come see the play. We till we see the play, and I think probably we are going to want to have you back. I'm very. I think we're just definitely. Your story is riveting, and I can't wait to hear more. Unfortunately, we only have a couple of minutes left here. Told you this hour would go fast. 
A couple of questions just before, just real quick, before we sign off, Eugene, will you give us that email one more time? I just want to say a couple things before you give me that is Eugene has two TED Talks out there for folks that want to um, check those out. Also, the movie Life of a King based on his life. We've got uh, bigchairchessclub.org to check out the chess club. And what was that email again for the book that folks can get to and mm-hmm. information on the play, yeah. anything mm-hmm. else? And last, yeah. you said you were an avid reader, and I would love to finish off by hearing what you're reading right now. Uh, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, well, let, let me, uh, my, my, uh, I'm reading a book right now. Is The name of it is... Uh, I'm reading a book called Divine Romance, and this is the, this yogi guy, you know. Uh, but the, another book I'm reading by is by Bo. How do you pronounce L O Z O F F? Lozoff, Bo Lozoff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that. We we all book. doing I read time. In prison. I know. Yep, we're all doing time. That's yeah, really and that's crazy. that's what we're doing right now. We're all doing time. But let me tell you about the Big Chair Chess Club. This yeah, is a give, story. Us your, give us the contact info, and then we've okay, got to sign off, okay, and we will okay, schedule you for okay, the next time. Okay. This is the story of a chess club, founded for inner city youth. It's different from most. It's distinguishing both of not just teaching chess, but truth. It teaches young children to reason, to rationalize, to use good sense and intelligence against deception, treachery, and lies. So at the Big Chair Chess Club, we're on a mission to save the lives of our children, to teach the unteachable, Reach the unreachable and always think before you move. Thinking before you move is seeing further than your eyes can see. My email address is chessman eugene brown at gmail.com. And uh, thank you so much, Eugene. Can't thank you enough. Can't wait to have you back as a guest. One last thing, real quick where can people see the uh, debut of From Ponds to Kings, the play? Uh, it's coming. It's coming to the West Coast right now. We is at a community theater, and community theaters is giving me some credibility. So, you know, when I do present in other places, the first thing anyone else is, where has it ever been, you know, shown before? So, it's going to be at the Art Theater in Winston Salem, North Carolina. But it's going to we're going to go national. We're going to take it national because this is a play that uh, is is spiritual in nature, just like. From Pawns to King, do you know how far that is? Do you know that's a that's a story within itself? It is a story within itself. I cannot <laughs> wait to hear it, Eugene. Seriously, with all sincerity, it is so, going to be an absolute pleasure to have you back. Okay, thank you so much, Jeremy. And thank you so much, Eugene. And uh, once again, you can catch us every Friday, 10 a.m. at StartupRadioNetwork.com, and we'll see you next week. It's us signing out, on the Ink. Stay safe. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you can easily control how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up, or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code Ruby. Tell them Felony Inc. sent you and get $150 credit.
You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.